0: Sometimes we delve into scripture and we, we end up just really more talking about truths that we need to know and understand. And today's more of that kind of psalm. But, but knowing what we're going to learn from Psalm 2 and from other scriptures should bring about a response in us, an expectation that Jesus is coming again. And that's a real thing and it's going to happen So once again, Psalm 2 is a song about our king, and that may sound funny to some of you, the idea of us having a king, because I think all of us pretty much have grown up in the United States, and we've never had a king, and we've only had presidents. Um, this This is just a strange concept to think we have a king. You may be surprised to learn today that you and I were actually not made for democracy. We were made for monarchy. We were made to be under Jesus' rule as our king. Um, ultimately, that's a theocracy where God is the actual present ruler on the earth, and that's the context of this psalm as we look at it. You see, none of us have ever lived here on earth under a monarch's rule in this room, but as we survey all types of governments and the ones that we've experienced personally and the ones that we see around the world today, um, we, we can pretty with a great deal of assurance, pretty well say that we've never seen a perfectly benevolent government. We've never seen a person in power whose only thought ever is to only do that which is good for the people under their stewardship. We've, you've never seen it. I've never seen it. Not here on this planet. It's always tainted with sin because every human authority is sinful. Sinful. Right? Even the best ones down through history, whoever you can think of on your top ten list of governing authorities down through history. I don't know who makes the list. Probably not a lot of people. Um, but uh, depending on where you grew up, especially in Venezuela right now, nobody's on the list. Uh, here in America, we're pretty divided about who's on the list. That's okay because Jesus is the king and he is perfectly benevolent. He only ever wants that which is good for his people. And so uh, this, this is exactly what scripture says here. If you got your Bibles or Psalm 2, and we're just going to read through it together. It's on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. Psalm says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm not sure that we talk about this aspect of Jesus enough. We have a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, with a lamb draped over his shoulder and some product in his hair, right? That's the Jesus we're comfortable with. This is a different Jesus than the one we typically look at in American culture. So I think it's important for us to get this perspective. Let's go back to verses one through three. Uh, this is the earthly reality, right? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the nations raging, the people are plotting in vain. They're, they stand, so the inference here is standing united. So that's a future event to see the world united against the Lord and against his anointed ruler. The word here is Mashiach in the Hebrew. It's the word we get Messiah from. In the Greek, it's Christos, which is Christ, the anointed one. Christos means anointed, right? It's not Jesus' last name, you, you do, right? Jesus Christ It's some some people are like, I, thought, I just thought it was his last name. It's, it's not, it's a title. It's Jesus the anointed one, the, the, the Christos, the Messiah, right? And so this speaks to a rebellious confederacy of nations at a future point in time in history who are actually plotting together to fight against God and gain their freedom from his rule. Now that is the epitome of in vain, okay? You cannot wage war against God and win. You, you just can't. I love the story of uh, the burglar who was uh, in Antwerp, Belgium. He had burglarized a home. And he fled out the back door as the police were pulling up to the front door. And, and he scrambled up onto this nine foot privacy wall. I don't know how he did it. He managed to get to the top of the wall. He's very pleased with himself as he could hear the officers in the home looking for him. He could, he knew that he was, he he was gone. All he had to do was drop down the other side of the wall. And he didn't bother to check as he did that, as he dropped down the other side of the wall, assured of his escape, that no police officer was going to be able to follow him over that nine foot wall. The only problem was when he dropped down on the other side, he found himself on the grounds of the city jail. And so th- this is the epitome of fleeing in vain, right? You- you've done this terrible thing. You're getting away from the authorities. You think you've made your escape and you find out you're in jail. Uh, and this is, this is the kind of vanity that the, these world leaders are plotting in Psalm 2. It's just, it's ridiculous, right? Behind the scenes of this age, there is a person who orchestrates this world system. Paul calls calls it the cosmos. This, This world system that we live in, his name is Lucifer, or some people call him Satan. Right? And Scripture calls him the prince of the power of the air or the little g, God of this world. Um, I was reading this week, doing some research. There's a man named David Spangler who's an American spiritual philosopher and author. He's considered one of the founding figures of the modern New Age movement in America. And this is a quote from David Spangler. Lucifer comes to give us the final gift of wholeness. If we accept it, then we are free. This is Luciferic initiation. It is one that many people now and in the days ahead will be facing. It is the initiation to enter into the new age. That is the spirit of our age. right? And God's law and God's morality are the constraints that, that those people want to so desperately throw off and be rid of. And people who are lost in their sin see God's restrictions as actually they're uh, um, hindering their fun. He's the cosmic killjoy, right? And they can't see that God's put those boundaries in place for their good and for their safety and for their protection. They see them as hateful chains to be cast off. And so uh, I, I was just remembering back this week to being a young guy and visiting my uncle's farm in South Carolina and my dad and my uncle conspiring to play a nasty prank on me because I had this brand new Coca-Cola t-shirt, which was bright red. And the bull in the pasture, they said, don't let that bull see you. You know that the bull's red, the red cape, the whole deal. I had no idea bulls were colorblind. Um, but they said, don't let that bull see you. He will come right through that fence after you. So, So for the rest of the afternoon, I'm... Ducking behind trees. I'm, I, I just didn't want the bull to see me. It was this cruel, cruel joke, right? They finally let me off the hook. But all day long, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I'm glad that that fence is there, right? I'm glad that the bull can't see me. There were boundaries and I was not about to get in the pen where the bull was. I knew where the boundary was and I was, I was scared enough that I was on the other side of that fence, right? But those, those boundaries are there for a reason. Those fences are there for a reason. God puts up boundaries for us. Um, as we we think of tyrannical, archaic boundaries that should be removed and torn down at any cost. That's our culture today. God's restrictions on human sexuality. God's restrictions on gender. God's restrictions on any number of things. Our culture sees them as tyrannical. And, And they don't understand that the bonds that the Father has put in place are bonds of love. That those things are there to protect us because he loves us. So the response is this, the heavenly response, verse four. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and they will. Speak, then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, "As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill." So, so God laughs at mankind's feeble attempts to throw off His yoke of oppression. It's, it's ridicule from God, derision, mocking. Right? Just this week. I wrote that, uh, I think it was in response to someone on Facebook, satire is sometimes the most effective way to awaken a person to their own foolishness. Sometimes it takes just laughing at someone to, to go, you are being absolutely ridiculous. Right? And this is what God is doing here. Even though that's a painful experience, the outcome can be redemptive if the heart is humble. So always remember, always remember, you heard it here first, there's no 11th commandment, thou shalt be Nice. Right? Do you feel like in the church today, there's this prevailing mentality? Well, we should just be nice about everything. No. No. There's, there's times when we don't need to be nice, right? When people are being ridiculous and they're 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 conspiring against God or they're advocating things that are just completely antithetical to not just God's law but the the goodness of humankind. It's, no, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. There's no 11th commandment. And God's laughing at them. He's not laughing with them. He's laughing at them. And he speaks in his wrath and his fury. He said, I've got a king. You guys, you leaders of the world, you you want to throw off my yoke of oppression. I've already got a king. I've established a government upon his shoulders, a government that there will be no ending of. Jesus is going to rule from Zion, God's holy hill. And that's not metaphorical. Okay? that's That's future event, but it's a literal future event. The land of Israel is important to God right? The Levant, you, you know, the ISIS, we call it ISIS. It's actually, um, ISIL is that they want the L in ISIL stands for the Levant. That's that whole area of the middle East. When you go back to God giving Israel a land, it's all theirs and, and they want it. They're, they're the Islamic army of the Levant. They want the Levant. They want that land. God gave his land to his covenant people. Verse 7, he says, I'm going to tell you of the decree. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Okay, Jesus speaking now. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. John 3. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only, what? Begotten son. There's only one of those. There's only one of those. This is Jesus. Today you're my son. I have begotten you. Ask of me. This is the father speaking to Jesus. Jesus recounting the words of the father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So recalling the father's commission to him, he says a couple of things. You're my son. I'm your dad. The earth and the nations belong to you, Jesus. Rule them with severity if you have to. Meet out justice and bring about submission of nations. Right? Um, I'll just give you a rundown of a couple of verses. You don't have to look them up. Psalm 2, we're in. Psalm 110. uh, The book of Zechariah details this. And the book of Revelation all speak about a rod of iron in the hand of Jesus. And Zechariah even says that some nations during the millennial reign of Jesus, during these thousand years, will not come to worship him in Jerusalem. And as a result, he will withhold rain from their land. And, and he will shatter them like pottery. So not all of the subjects that are under his rule in this thousand years in the future, this future reign of Jesus, are good subjects. Not all of them are happy that Jesus is reigning and ruling the earth, right? The kingdom is imposed upon the world and not necessarily accepted by all mankind with gratitude. So verse 10, he says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. This is the postlude. Here's some parting advice for humanity, right? Kings of the earth, be wise. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So to, to all earthly authorities, wise up. Heed this instruction. This is a call to humility. Serve Jesus with awe and fear and trembling, because the fear of the Lord, song, Proverbs 1 says, is the beginning of what? Wisdom, right, right. It's just a basic self-preservation. Wise up, right. Pay homage to the sun. Kiss the sun. Uh, think Don Corleone. Eh, kiss the ring, right. It's a it's a sign of respect. It's a paying homage to someone in authority that could k- kill you, right. And so you kiss you kiss the ring. Um, Jesus here seems he says it. Don't make him angry. If you do, you're dead, right. Jesus seems like such an angry person here. I don't like it. I like supermodel Fabio Jesus you got to deal with the Jesus of Scripture. okay? you got to deal with the Jesus of Scripture. And at this point in history, God will have, in, have patiently endured over 6,000 plus years of man's sin and rebellion. So this is an age, this 1,000 year reign of utopian rule where Jesus is the actual physical king of the earth and yet, even with God ruling man, man will still rebel and harden his heart towards that authority. So all who take refuge in him are blessed. All who take refuge in him are blessed. Let me unpack this a uh, little bit of we, we talk about eschatology in the church. That's our what do we believe about the end times? That's just the theological word for end times. We're talking about a thousand-year rule of Christ on the earth. I just submit to you this morning that probably nine out of ten churches that I uh, know personally don't understand this doctrine. There's nothing in heaven or on earth that's more certain about this than this truth about God's kingdom coming upon the earth. Let me just walk you through a couple of passages here. Luke 19, verses 11 and 12. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed at that time that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So, So this idea Jesus is talking about in Luke 19, receiving a kingdom and then returning He's gone and he's coming back. Christ's return will be to rule the planet Earth. It's a highly controversial doctrine in many churches, but it shouldn't be. Um, I'm going to give you numbers. Don't fall asleep. Ready for this? There are 1,845 references to this event in the Old Testament. There are 318 references to it in the New Testament. And 23 out of the 27 New Testament books give prominence to the idea of the return of Jesus. There, so if you just go through the Old Testament, there are over three hundred specific prophecies in the Old Testament about the the advent of Jesus, when he comes the first time, his birth, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. There are over three hundred specific prophecies about that event. That's really astronomically high that any book could accurately predict that many things about something that at the time had yet happened. Did you know for every prophecy about the first coming of Jesus, there are eight times as many about the second coming of Jesus in scripture. It is the most sure event in history that has yet to happen. It's crazy. It's crazy how much the Bible talks about this. See, back in the third century, there was a, a an early church father named Origen and Origen had a very rigid hermeneutic. Hermeneutic's the word we talk about. How do we interpret the Bible? It's our philosophy of interpretation. And Origen had a very rigid view of Scripture. He was a hyper literalist, right? And so Jesus says things in the Gospels like if your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? You pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? You you cut it off. Well, he was struggling with lust. Do you know what Origen did? Yeah castrated himself. Regret, immediate regret. And so he, he, he swung his hermeneutic way to the other side. He went from being hyper-literal to being super-spiritual and allegorical, right? Well, Scripture couldn't possibly mean that. Jesus couldn't possibly have meant what he said when he said this. And so that, that whole philosophy of interpretation went way to the other end of the spectrum. And as he explored that, he discipled a guy that we know called Augustine. And Augustine came on the scene and he took Origen's hermeneutic and his approach to scripture and he kind of systematized it and that became the prevailing view of what would become The Roman Catholic Church. And so get the picture. Uh, Around 325 AD, you have uh, the Council of Nicaea, and Constantine legalizes Christianity in the Roman Empire. And and so um, they have a very spiritualized, allegorized hermeneutic and approach to interpreting scripture, especially places like Revelation. And so now the government. And the church are one in the same. It's all one big happy family. And it's very politically incorrect to talk about Jesus is going to come back and rid the earth of corrupt governments when you're the pastor who gets a paycheck from the government. Right? So that all, that all moved us in a direction away from an understanding of what God's word actually says about this event. And so here, so when you end up in that place, you end up in a belief about that event, that thousand years, that's called ah millennialism. Whenever you put the a before a word in the in the Greek, it negates it, right? So if you're a theist, you believe in God. If you're an ah theist or an atheist, you don't you believe there's no God, right? So it negates. So the millennium, if you're an ah millennial, then that means you don't believe in a literal thousand year reign of Jesus, right? So so here's the problem with ah millennialism is that the old Testament is filled with promises of a messianic rule, which is exactly why the Jews didn't recognize Jesus the first time they expected him as a political ruler, a political military leader. And he, he said, I didn't come to do that this time. I came to die for the sins of my people. So, so you get Gabriel coming to Mary in Luke chapter one. And the angel says to Mary, don't be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God and you're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son and you're going to call his name. Jesus. Jesus. And he's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. And God's going to give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, let me just ask you a question. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of the father. He's seated on the father's throne. Jesus never sat on David's throne. That's a political military dynasty that is promised to Jesus. It was promised to David first, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. And it's never happened yet. Never happened, right? So to dismiss or explain away the millennium is a huge problem. Right? Uh, Eschatology, if you talk to other believers, we have our first big break in what we believe about the end times over this issue of the millennium. Some people say we're already in it. Well, one of the things that scripture says is that during those thousand years, Satan is chained up in the bottomless pit. I have a hard time believing that we're in the millennium right now. Just watch the news, okay? And you're going to have to work real hard to make that work, right? Um, so th- this, this period of time in the future is a testing ground for the inhabitants of the earth while Satan is bound. And, and I just charge, charge and challenge all my all-millennialist friends to make the case for Satan being bound today. Um, For a thousand years, the nations will be without excuse. And at the end of the time, man totally, he boffs it all by himself. He doesn't need any help to rebel against God. And so um, let me just give you one more here, one more verse. Just want to drive it home that the millennium is a real thing and it's a future event. Acts 15. This is the Jerusalem council. And and so um, James is there; he's the half brother of Jesus, and Peter's there, and Paul. And so they're all meeting. And after they finish speaking together, James says, "Brothers, I want you to listen to me. Listen, Simon Peter has related now how God first visited the Gentiles to make for them a people out of His for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets all agree. For it is written. Now, here is what the prophet said. He says, after this." After God works among the Gentiles and the nations for a season in world history, after that happens, I will return and I will rebuild the ruins of Jerusalem. I will restore the tent of David that has fallen. So get get the timeline, right? Get the timeline. David's throne is underscored and recognized by the church council. And James is quoting the prophet Amos. And and so people called out from the Gentiles. That's first. That's what's happening now. We call that the church. And then the establishment of the throne of David. Right? So eschatology is really important because it's a test of our overall understanding of the Bible. It's, it's also important because we're plunging currently towards that period of time detailed in the Bible as a precursor to Armageddon. So... Uh, Just to wrap it all up, this is really, Psalm 2 is really about the justice of God. It's all about the justice of God. I I love, um, there was a Supreme Court justice uh, named Horace Gray. And Horace Gray is a Supreme Court justice and a man who really, he loved righteousness and he loved what was right and he loved the law. And, and once there's this man who had appeared before him at some point previous in his career in a lower court and he was before him again, he had escaped on, on a technicality. He'd gotten away from being convicted on a technicality. And this is what Supreme Court Justice Horace Gray said to this man when he saw him again in court. He says, I know that you're guilty. And you know that you're guilty. And I wish that you would remember that one day you will stand before a better judge and a wiser judge than me. And at that point, you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to the law of man. Ooh, we need more Supreme Court justices like that. Hello. That's, that's scary. right? You can get off on a technicality. You're not going to get off on a technicality with God. And so you cannot escape God's justice. You cannot escape. Justice delayed is not justice denied. And no one escapes God's perfect scrutiny. I love uh, 20th century author, philosopher, Christian writer Francis Schaefer. He's a brilliant man. I think he was a prophet. He saw things coming 70, 100 years in advance. He could see the trend in the church and where the culture was going. And he wrote at one point, he said, just imagine that at the moment of your birth, the only interaction that God had with you as a person was to attach to you a device. And the purpose of this device was simply to record every moral judgment that you make. Just let that sink in for a minute. Let that terrify your heart every moral judgment you make. You remember you are on I-5 this week and that idiot came flying by in the Honda Civic? Sorry, by the way. um, And you said, that guy's a jerk, right? Moral judgment. Somebody cut you off in traffic. (coughs) Cut you off in traffic or um, any number of things that have happened. At some point, you're making a moral pronouncement about somebody else. And that device just records those things for the the duration of your life, right? And, and, and when I'm in the crosswalk, uh, those cars need to stop for me because I have the right of way. And when I'm in the car, that dude needs to get out of the way. And it's, it, I can't even live up to my own moral standard, right? It's always in flux. It's always changing because it's, it's rooted around me and what I want. And so Francis Schaeffer said, so then imagine that at the moment of your death, the only thing that God did was to hit playback on your device and then hold you accountable to your own morality how would you do? How would you do? I'm in trouble. I just want you to know. I'm just going to confess. I'm in trouble. By my own moral standards, I can't live up to my own morality. And God's morality is infinitely higher than mine. Infinitely higher. You cannot escape God's justice. And then here's the last point. We'll we'll end with this. God's justice is perfect and good for those who've taken refuge in Jesus. It's a good thing. His justice becomes a good thing, a desirable thing when we seek refuge in the person of Jesus. There was an old man, a Sanskrit scholar in India, who was also a Christian believer, a follower of Jesus. And he was preaching down in the town bazaar in, in this little town in India. And he was preaching about how he could recognize, reconcile the death of Jesus Christ for men, the death of a guiltless person on behalf of everybody else who was guilty. And and that reality with God's justice, how does that work? That doesn't seem like it's just at all, that someone who's innocent would die for all these guilty people. How is that just? How is that justice? And so here was his reply. He said, our ideas of the justice of God or any kind of justice at all are really crude and imperfect. For example, if a man steals 20 rupees and then he spends that money, he may be caught and punished as a thief, but the money that he stole will not be restored to the man from whom it was stolen. Justice is not done to that person. And that thief may suffer for his crime, but the other man's justice is loss and pain. So it's only half justice. Or suppose that a man was to kill three people. Should he be hanged three times so that justice may be done fully? Well, even if that's the case, those people are not restored to their families or their community. And the man who killed them then is put to death. And thus man's justice again is resolved only to loss And pain, but God's justice is different, he said. It results in gain and in joy. Lost souls are found and losses are made good. Happiness takes the place of misery, and all because the Son of God gave himself a willing sacrifice to save people and restore them to God. See, you and I were made for God's justice, but only when we take refuge in Jesus. And we were made for a monarchy. We were made to be ruled by a good and benevolent king. And those of us who've already settled that account and that authority issue with Jesus now are going to enjoy and delight in his reign and in his rule. In fact, Scripture promises that we will reign and rule with him. That's exciting. This is a thing to be looked forward to, expectant of, desirous for, now, if you think of this future reality and this morning you find yourself a little apprehensive and you're like, I don't know, man, I, I, it makes me nervous and I'm just not sure I want that. And I'm kind of fearful. Then, then what that says, is there's a disconnect still between you and Jesus. And we, and we need to deal with that today. Okay, don't let another day go by between now and that point in the future when you haven't dealt with that disconnect between you and Jesus, your life and his righteousness. Need to be reconciled with one another. Deal with that today. Right? Don't let another hour escape because the hour is late. I believe the hour is late, and Jesus is coming soon for His bride, and we need to be ready and we need to be expectant and watching. And above all, here's the thing: I was having this conversation just yesterday at the outreach. We need to be found faithful. That's that's the that's the watchword for us: it's to be found faithful. Somebody asked Martin Luther, the great. Theologian of the Reformation, if you knew Jesus would come back tomorrow, what would you do today? Expecting some answer like, oh, I'd go leave my house and leave everything behind and go running through the streets yelling the gospel as loud as I could. Right, That might be the answer we would give. Martin Luther said, I would plant a tree. I thought that's an interesting answer because it gets at that tension between um, the brevity of the time we have left and the expectation, but also doing things today that may take a lifetime To see the fruit come about because it's about faithfulness. It's about faithfulness. So, will He find faith on the earth when the Son of Man returns? Will He find us filled with faith and faithful? All who take refuge in Him are blessed and happy. Lord, would You do that for us as Your people? Would You fill us with faith? Would You train our hearts to live in the place of expectancy? father we just say to you right now in a moment of clarity and honesty that the things of this world and the things of this life the riches of this world the the, the shiny sparkly things in the storefront window and on the television dull our senses to you we're so consumed and we, we talk about your return and the ending of the age and and, and um, stepping out of this existence and into another one with you and there's a there's a there's a remorse. There's, a, there's a, a place in our hearts that's actually kind of sad about that because we really love this life and we love these things and our hearts are a little bit here. And uh, Lord, Would you help us to remember the words of Jesus that where our treasure is, that's where our hearts will be. And if we're setting our mind on things above and storing up treasure in heaven, then we will be expectant for your return in our time with you. But if we're investing ourselves here in this life and in this world, God, would you train our hearts to let go of those things and look heavenward and be filled with righteousness. Shape us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.